Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And I'll tell you what I told her. I said, uh, Brittany, my name is Ambassador Roger Carstens. I'm with the U.S. Department of State, and on behalf of the President of the United States, Joe Biden, and Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, I'm here to take you home. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an all-new episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And sitting in for the everlasting and dashing Nick Savary, I'm Alex Clement from G-Zero Media. Ooh, look at that. Uh, way better than Sabrina's intro. Uh, on the program, we're going to get into some of that. I don't know if Nick Savary is just any of those things, but on the program today, uh, Brittany Griner returns home to the United States, and some people are upset, Alex. We're going to get into that in a second. I don't know why, but the latest on the war in Ukraine, nobody better to educate us on that, and we're going to get into Alex's great piece that you can check out over at G-Zero Media. Plus, later on in our final segment, the world in 10 minutes. Remember like the 10-10 wins? We give you 22. You give us 22 minutes, we give you the world. Alex and I are going to take you around the world in under 10 minutes. A new segment we're going to debut on the show. Uh, Alex, you have been on this program before. I say hello normally to Nick. I say hello to you now. Why don't you tell the people a little bit that don't listen to the show, maybe new people coming into the show, uh, tell them a little bit of what you do over at G-Zero Media and about yourself. All right, we'll do. Uh, well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, I was, I guess I was on the show first six months ago, seven months ago, yeah. a, little, a little shortly after the war in Ukraine started. And you guys were kind enough to have me on, so it's good to be back. Uh, yeah, my name is Alex Clement. I um, am an editor and producer at uh, G-Zero Media, which is a media company based in New York that covers global po- global politics. Um, we try to cover it in a way that makes it make sense for normal people who are not like 
at the Council on Foreign Relations like all the time, right? So just for normal folks, like what what's going on in the world and what does it mean? Um, I uh, write for a newsletter there called Signal, which I encourage you all, if I can do some shameless promotion, I encourage you all to sign up for. It's a popular uh, morning uh, global politics newsletter. I am signed um, up for that. It is very good. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and I uh, do some work on a television program that we have called uh, G Zero World with Ian Bremmer, which you can see on PBS affiliates around the country. And I produce a puppet satire show called Puppet Regime, uh, which you can check out on our website. Uh, that's who I am and what I do. I I'm from New York and that's where I live. And uh, that's about it. That's right. And all of this will be available on his profile that we'll put up on the show links. We're going to we'll put profiles for everybody to see Alex's content. You do great work over there. You know how much. I'm a fan of your stuff. Uh, I was actually watching something of you uh, on Stephanie Rule's show, I think, or somebody mm -hmm. somebody on MSNBC a while back when you were explaining, explaining Russia and Ukraine. So you did a great job there. Um, and let's get into our first segment because there's nobody better than you. And this is the reason why we kind of had you. It's perfect timing, by the way. Who knew that former WNBA star, and she'll be back in the WNBA when it plays. I doubt she'll play in Russia ever again, basketball-wise. We'll get into that. Uh, <laughs> uh, obviously, Brittany Griner, if you haven't heard the news, you heard the clip at the top of the program there and the prisoner swap that happened this past week that kind of took over and dominated the news cycle over the last couple of days. Obviously, Russia uh, letting go of Brittany Griner in exchange for Victor Bout, the arms dealer that was exchanged in this prisoner swap. President Biden uh, gave a speech last week with Kamala Harris and, and Brittany's wife there after meeting her in the Oval Office. Let's take a listen to what the president said last week. Moments ago, standing together with her wife, Sherelle, uh, in the Oval Office, I spoke with Brittany Griner. She's safe. She's on a plane. She's on her way home. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, held under intolerable circumstances, Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and, uh, and she should have been there all along. She wrote to me back in July. She didn't ask for special treatment, even though we've been working on a release from the day one. She requested a simple quote, please don't forget about me and the other American detainees. Please do all you can to bring us home. We never forgot about Brittany. We've not forgotten about Paul Whelan, who's been unjustly detained in Russia for years. This was not a choice of which American to bring home. We brought home Trevor Reed when we had a chance early this year. Sadly, for totally illegitimate reasons, Russia is treating Paul's case differently than Brittany's. And while we have not yet succeeded in securing Paul's release, we are not giving up. We will never give up. All right. So the president said a lot there. We're going to break down a lot of that. Uh, first, Alex, let me turn to you because, well, there's nobody else here, uh, but nobody better as well. <laughs> To talk a little bit about this prisoner swap, everyone, uh, at least in the right wing media circles, is making a huge deal about who was part of this exchange on the Russian side. Mm -hmm. now, you heard what the president just said there in terms of how they're treating uh, Paul Whelan's case. We're going to get to Paul in a second. But when you heard the news of Brittany getting released, who she was released for, what do you make of all of it? Well, look, the, the first thing to say is that there's there's almost no doubt that the Biden administration saved Brittany Griner's life here. Um, you know, I, I, I have I have not been to a Russian penal colony, but I have seen the inside of a Russian prison, uh, not as an inmate, as a visitor, I assure you. Uh, and it is a grim situation, even for Russian speaking hardened criminals from Russia. Um, it is impossible to overstate the infernal torturous hell that awaited Brittany Griner in a Russian penal colony 
as a non-Russian who doesn't speak Russian, who is black, who is female, who is a lesbian, who is American. I mean, that is, I don't know what the sixth version of a trifecta is, the sextect, whatever it is. That is like the worst possible combination of things you could be in a Russian uh, prison colony. I mean, I, I, I really think that it, she would not have lasted uh, more than a few years there. Um, so that's the first thing is that he, I think the Biden administration from a human perspective saved this woman's life. The reason that people were upset about it um, or questioned the, the deal that was made is that Victor Boot is someone who, you know, he's a renowned arms trafficker. If any of your listeners have seen Lord of War and Nick Cage, he's based on Victor Boot's character. He's a prodigious uh, arms smuggler and arms seller who has run billions of dollars of weapons into every single horrific conflict you can name around the world, in South America, in Africa, in Asia, everywhere, former Soviet Union, you name it, his, his weapons were there. He is a person of incalculable intelligence value to the Russian government and practical value, right? The Russian government likes to be able to meddle in conflicts around the world and do it without direct fingerprints, right? And so a guy like Victor Boot is, is, has tremendous value to them from a national security perspective, from a foreign policy perspective, from an intelligence perspective. Brittany Griner does not have the same value to the American government from a national security perspective, from a you know uh, foreign policy perspective, right? So people said, this was a really unfair trade. We gave up the world's most notorious merchant of death uh, a criminal arms smuggler of the highest order in exchange for a professional athlete who happened to have some CBD oil in her baggage and was like transparently politically framed as part of that. Not framed. I mean, the laws are what they are in Russia. Right. But, you know, the discretion was there for them not to throw her in jail for 10 years for this. Right. And it's, they did it anyway. So people were upset about that or said, this seems really imbalanced. And at first, you know, at first sight, I'll be honest, when I looked at it, I was like, wow, the Russians really got a lot more out of this than the Americans did. Right. Um, but as I thought about it more, I think that was the wrong initial take, actually. Because if you think about, I mean, leaving aside the question that like we just, you know, I talked about, he, he, we saved Brittany Griner's life here. If you think about what makes Russia tick or the Russian government tick versus what makes the American government tick, like the Russian government is not concerned with like what people, the Russian people think. I mean, Victor Boot is like, is known in Russia, but it's not like he's a cause celeb under a, for a large proportion of the, of the Russian population. When what it's important for the for, for Putin's regime to get Victor Boot back, not because he's concerned about how it looks to the Russian people, but because all his boys in the security services are like, we would really love to get this guy back. He's super valuable to us, to, to us right? And there's already news that he's like, you know, Western intelligence agencies are worried he's going to pick up right where he left off and start running weapons to Africa and South South America and 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 places in Asia as well. So, uh, what what Russia cares about is different than what America cares about. I think for the Biden administration, the optics of allowing a prominent black female lesbian athlete to potentially die in a Russian prison, right? This meant a lot to millions and millions of American people, right? And I think it's just a difference in how different kinds of regimes respond to different pressures, right? Like a democratic regime, I mean, the US is plenty hypocritical in the way it does foreign policy, all kinds of things. I mean, it's but, but when you get 
at a basic level, the U.S. is a democracy that needs to respond to certain pressures from voters and from the population, from society, right? And I just think that there's something important about that for the American government that said, hey, actually, it really is important strategically for us to get Brittany Griner back. It is important for us to show the American people that we will get people like this back when we can, so that the trade is not as lopsided as it looks. It's not like, you know, it's not like the Russians got Mike Trout in exchange for some like triple A journeyman pitcher, right? I mean, it's like, if you think about the criteria, they're just different, right? What Russia got, Victor Boot's really important. And for a lot of things that the US values as well, human rights issue, you know, concerns, the, 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 the precedent that it sets, the way that it looks, the type of person she was, it was important, particularly for a Democrat president, to be seen doing everything that he can do to get her out. So yeah. I think it's not quite as lopsided as it looks, even though from a pure, like hard power perspective, the Russians probably got more out of it. It's very interesting that you said some of that, because I, I think a lot of pundits on television have been talking about 2024, right? And if Joe mm -hmm. Biden uh, decides to run again, uh, how this will look to voters that potentially could be, you know, on the fence about Joe Biden. Again, a lot of the times foreign policy is kind of lower on voter issues, but here's getting back an American that was, again, not falsely imprisoned, but the sentencing, like you mentioned, right? Nine and a half years. Think about you flying in a normal airport right now. You're not getting nine and a half years. And especially she's been playing in basketball in Russia for seven years consecutive. Yeah. They know who she is. Everybody knows who Brittany Griner is. She's very tough to miss. I've met Brittany Griner before. She's six nine. So you, it's, it's, <laughs> you're, it's not tough miss, to yeah. you're not going to miss Brittany Griner. I, I, I do want to get to the Paul Whalen part of this because yep. and I don't want to get down the rabbit holes of, you know, specific super far right folks that have made this comparison about we left the Marine behind, et cetera, et cetera. You've seen people tweet that. But I do want to play for the folks, something Paul Whalen's sister said, she was on an interview recently on Newsmax talking about her brother. And of course, the question is kind of framed in a, in a terrible way by the person. Of course, you know what, where, where the leanings are. But mm -hmm. I want you to take a listen to her answer. We're going to react on the other side. Take a listen to this. Why would one person be treated even by our own government different than the other? They both meet the same criteria that they set. Why would they leave Paul there, a decorated Marine? Well, unfortunately, it's uh, it's really Russia's fault. I mean, overall, the uh, from the time that Paul was arrested, Russia put him in a different category. And even though the both the Trump administration and the Biden administration, um, you know, tried to get Paul back, uh, and in fact, after Trevor Reed and Brittany Griner both were arrested, tried to sort of bundle them up together, the Russians insisted on dividing them up and trying to have a different deal for Paul. Uh, and ask for something different. And my feeling is that they purposefully separated out Brittany Griner and the deal for her because they knew how much trouble it would cause. Can you explain for our listeners right now, and hearing her say that was a really great answer, you heard the framing of the question there. Obviously, you know what network that guy's on, oh, or at least you would guess. Um, but uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about Paul Whalen? They're hearing this name. Uh, they don't understand it. Was he a Marine? Was he dishonorably discharged? What was he doing in Russia? Can you take our audience a little bit into the Paul Whalen case and why it is different and why he wasn't a part of this swap, potentially, as the sister alluded, that Russia is treating the case differently, as President Biden alluded himself? Well, the reason that it's different is that the Russians uh, believe that Paul Whalen truly was and is a spy. Uh, 
the U.S. government says he's not, that doesn't mean he's not. We, we don't know. <laughs> and there's really, um, but 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 the crucial difference is that it, it, it's you know the Russians distinguished between Brittany Griner, which was transparently political, right? Uh, which, by the way, is how they see Victor Boot, which I'll get to in a second, um, from Paul Whelan, uh, whom they view as a a legitimate, uh, legitimately detained, you know, potential, well, in their view, spy, right? So th from what I understand, uh, everything we've seen is that uh, the Russians said, no, Whelan can't be part of the deal uh, for Victor Boot. It's, it, it's Griner or nothing. There was also a report that the Russians might try to throw in uh, there's a Russian assassin uh, named Krasikov who's in being held in Germany right now after killing so, uh, 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 killing someone in Germany. The German authorities hold this guy. The Russians allegedly wanted him as part of a four part deal with 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 Whelan and and Griner. The Germans said no, so a lot of it fell apart. But it's just I, I think that the easiest way to think about why they're different is is why the Russians see it as different, which is that they you know basically uh, threw the book at Griner, knowing that it was going to be a political a point of leverage with the Americans because everyone could see that that this was ridiculous, but that there was no leverage to do anything about it. Whereas Whalen, I think they uh, they think they really do have something important uh, in an actual spy and that that for them is, is simply a different category. Uh, yeah, he's a former Marine who was detained while he was traveling in Russia um, uh, in 2018, I guess. Um, and, uh, and the Russians weren't going to budge on him. So the Biden administration, basically what it looked like was they had the choice of uh, Griner or nothing. Uh, and uh, And they chose Griner over nothing. Yeah. Were you shocked at all of the timing of, of all this by President Biden? And obviously she has made the news, but obviously the news cycle is kind of lost a little bit in the Bernie Griner shuffle over the last couple of months. Whereas, you know, all of a sudden you wake up on Thursday or Friday, whenever this kind of broke and you're like, oh, wow, they, Brittany Griner's coming home. Next thing you know, you see her on a plane in Abu Dhabi and the exchange happening on the tarmac there. Were you kind of shocked at the at the timing of all this? Is it suspect, especially with what's going on with the war in, in Ukraine right now? We're going to get to that in a second. But the timing of it just kind of seems off because why would Putin, we all, we all feel it, this side of the pond, that Putin was using her as a chip. We've mentioned mm -hmm. she's been playing in Russia for seven years. Her teammates came to her defense. She's carrying less than whatever the uh, the illegal amount would be there. And all of a sudden she's sentenced for nine and a half years in a Russian prison. The timing of it, is that off to you? All of a sudden, this is not even like a Friday news dump. It was just kind of like, oh, here's Brittany Griner for uh, the Merchant of Death. And But it's like, but isn't a war going, isn't a war going on right now? Like, why would they do this right now. Take us inside that timing. Did you think it was a little bit suspect right now? Not so much. I mean, I think um, what one thing that I had read was that actually th they may have had a potential deal in place sooner, but that Putin wanted to wait until after the midterms were over because he wanted you want to give Biden anything ahead of the, ahead of the midterms. Um, but no, I think look, there has been. Um, it's a softening of rhetoric is a little maybe makes it sound like too much, but let's say a softening of rhetoric a little bit on the US and Russian sides over the past couple of weeks in a way. You know, Biden saying, I, I would be willing to sit down with Putin, you know, with preconditions and as long as I do it with my NATO allies and so on. Putin past couple of days kind of backed off a little bit some of the nuclear threats he'd made earlier. 
Um, so I think I get the impression that there has been a little more talking going on between the Russian and American sides about a whole host of issues, uh, back channel stuff to be sure. I mean, there's not going to be a Biden Putin phone call anytime soon. Um, so that's one thing, but also, I mean, to be purely cynical about it, it's not a bad time for Russia to get Victor boot back, right? If, if, if what they think they need is, you know, a really slick way to get weapons into places fast that they haven't been able to do. Um, so I don't, I don't, um, I, the timing of it didn't strike me as that odd. Uh, I think maybe just a couple things that I meant that, that I just mentioned, maybe were part of it, but also, you know, these negotiations, they go on under the surface for months and months and months. And then finally there's a breakthrough and everyone says, okay, let's do this. Um, yeah, I didn't, didn't strike me as that, as that odd. Yeah. Well, let's get into the, the war itself right now happening. Cause you just alluded there about Putin kind of coming off of those claims, about, uh, you know, nuclear risk. He, you know, he said the war is going to take a while. And I want to test out your Russian here, uh, Alex. The folks watching us on YouTube are going to see the subtitles of this, but the people listening in podcast format, uh, I want to play a sound here from Putin recently talking about an attack on the an energy infrastructure to his neighbor. Uh, I take a listen to this. Alex is going to translate some of it. And oh. We're going to see if it matches up yeah. uh, to, to what is, is playing on the video files. I didn't tell him this uh, before right. we started recording. So take a listen to this. Да, мы делаем это. Ну, кто начал? Кто ударил по мосту, по Крымскому? Кто подорвал ли, линии электропередачи с атомной электростанции Курска? Кто не подает воду в Донецк? Неподача воды в миллионный город – это акт геноцида. Никто нигде словом об этом не обмолвился. Вообще. Молчок полный. Стоит нам только пошевелиться, что-то сделать в ответ. Шум, гам, треск на всю Вселенную. Это не будет нам мешать выполнять боевые задачи. All right, so, obviously, in my limited Russian and hitting on women before my wife, honey, if you're listening to this way before my wife, uh, I got a little, I got the нет part there and uh, some other uh, words there. But Alex... Obviously, I alluded to it and the people watching on YouTube saw he was talking about he admitted to the attacks that are happening in Ukraine. But why don't you take our audience a little bit into why Putin gave this? Uh, it wasn't a presser. It was I forget where the meeting happened. This was uh, reported on The Guardian. He started talking to reporters and he was just saying, well, who attacked us first? Right. Uh, and then he started giving reasons as to why they're doing attacks on the energy infrastructure in Ukraine. But why don't you take our audience into not only what Putin just said there, but the latest on what is happening in Ukraine now. So, yeah. So he, he basically says, look, there's been a lot of a lot of noise. People are really upset about us hitting the energy infrastructure of our neighboring country. Yes, we're doing it. And here's why. And he basically lays out what is uh, kind of the a lot of the Russian rationale for the invasion in the first place, which is the Ukrainian government has been trying to commit a genocide against Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine uh, by limiting their access to water, to energy, all these things, right? So from Russia's perspective, um, what they're doing is attacking energy infrastructure, uh, which to them is a legitimate target of their military campaign because that energy infrastructure supports what they see as the Ukrainian government's 
genocidal um, attacks on Russian speakers inside of Ukraine. Uh, and of course, you know, part of the war effort more generally against Russia, right? So Russia's case is, yep, we're doing it. And it's legitimate because that infrastructure is part of Ukraine's war effort, right? Um, just about every single credible human rights organization in the world would disagree with that. <laughs> um, what's really happening is, uh, in my view, is that we're kind of getting from phase three to phase four of the war. Phase one of the war was, wow, uh, Russia just invaded Ukraine. I wonder how many days Ukraine can last, right? Then phase two was, Ukrainians actually holding up pretty well. They're they're doing all right, right? They they they've they've kept the Russians from getting to Kiev. They've you know they've kept the Russians from 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 really toppling the government, taking over the country. That was phase two. Phase three, which began maybe about a month ago, six weeks ago, maybe two months ago, was wow. Not only are the Ukrainians holding the line, they're actually retaking thousands of square miles of territory that Russia took early in the war, including parts of Ukraine that Russia has already declared to be parts of Russia, right? So we're getting to phase four, which is like, how does that play out where you, where the two sides have shown, I mean, the Ukrainians have really shown us that these two sides are much more evenly matched than anyone expected months ago, least of all President Putin himself. So as we go into the winter, what uh, Putin is trying to do is he's trying to weaponize the weather, basically, right? Um, he's trying to, and this is an old Russian tactic. I mean, your listeners who know their history of the Napoleonic Wars will know that Russia has been using general winter, General Maroz, as it is in Russian, uh, since uh, since uh, the cold forced Napoleon's army to turn around from Moscow and march back to Paris half dead, right? Um, he's doing it again. Uh, and what they're doing is they're targeting energy infrastructure that provides heat and power to major Ukrainian cities, including in particular the capital, Kiev, right as nighttime temperatures in Ukraine start to dip into the teens or below in Fahrenheit, below freezing. Um, and the idea is to freeze over Russia, uh, the Ukrainian uh, popular uh, support for the war, to freeze over the war effort itself, um, on the one hand. Um, and to kind of kind of create pressure within Ukrainian society for Ukrainians to say, okay, maybe we should, uh, you know, sue for peace now. The problem is that's not what's happening in Ukrainian society right now. I mean, you talk to people in Kiev, you talk to people in Kharkiv, you talk to people around the country, and the the more the stuff, the, the worse Russia tries to punish. Ukrainians by knocking out their power and heat and 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 water with it, water, you know, in a high-rise building, which is most of the cities in Ukraine, when you knock out the power, nobody has power or heat or internet service or water either, right? Um, you talk to most people, and the sense is, a, we've been through this before as a society, right? Ukrainians still have memory of World War II, right? The the two battles of Kiev were two of the most horrific battles on the Eastern Front. They weren't Stalingrad, but they were close. Um, so there's like a kind of cultural memory of suffering during wartime that people can can latch on to. And two, it's just after 10 months of this totally illegitimate war against Ukraine, Ukrainians, it just makes them, it makes their resolve stronger, right? They say, look, this is what we are fighting against. We are fighting against an enemy that is targeting civilian infrastructure and power plants in the dead of winter. This is why we fight, right? As Ukrainians is what, is what you'll hear. Um, so, uh, so, you know, Putin's justification makes sense 
uh, on the logic of Putin's rationale for launching the war, which was Ukraine is a U.S.-backed Nazi state that is trying to commit genocide against ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine, and we must defend them. And also, we must teach you know the decadent West with their seventy-two genders a lesson. Um, but uh, but as an as a matter of practical execution, they're knocking out power. They're making uh, huge numbers of, of of. I mean, a quarter of Ukraine doesn't have access to reliable access to power right now. That's ten million people. Um, as a practical matter, they're committing a, a human rights uh, uh, violation. Um, but it's and it's not even working for what the Russians wanted to work it for, which is to for wanted to work for, which is to freeze over Ukraine's pot, you know, resolve uh, in this war. Uh, so that's, you know, how I would explain the both Putin's Putin's clip and what the other side of it actually is right now. The interesting question is, okay, you have a war where uh, both sides have shown themselves to be reasonably uh, evenly matched. Where does it end, right? Um, and is there a, is there a world in which you can actually convince both sides to sit down and, and, and talk about, you know, a reasonable settlement? Everyone understands that at some point there's going to have to be some compromise. Neither side's willing to do it yet. Right. I mean, Putin said flatly over the weekend, he's not willing to talk to the Ukrainians uh, unless they accept all of his territorial demands, which is basically to say we will only talk to the Ukrainians if they surrender, which is obviously not acceptable to the Ukrainians. The interesting dynamic on the Ukrainian side is um, you know, having shown that they can retake some territory from Russia, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who say, well, we should just keep going. We should take back Crimea, which was, uh, you know, try to take back Crimea, which was illegally occupied in 2014. We should try to continue to push further east. And it will be hard, I think, for Zelensky uh, to resist pressure from the most kind of hardcore uh, nationalist um, uh, types within Ukraine uh, to even begin to explore some kind of compromise uh, with Putin. So I think it's it, it's actually quite a, quite a dangerous phase of the war, even if I think the cold is going to, and the winter is going to make a lot of the fighting stop for, for a couple of months here. See, this is why we have people on the program who know what they're talking about, the tagline of this show, because I don't know anything. Of, well, I mean, I, obviously, other than reports, you wrote a fantastic article mm -hmm. over on G0Media.com about this, uh, that we posted on our show account IG page. And this is great. Like, this is the kind of stuff that people here in the US don't understand what's happening over there. And I want to expand on that a little bit because mm -hmm. earlier today I saw uh, Lana Zerkow, I think she's an assistant to the energy minister in Ukraine. She was on Fox News with our, our friend Mike Emanuel. Uh, and I saw a, a stat there on the bottom scroll that said the U.S. has sent Ukraine 19 billion so far in security aid mm -hmm. in, in 2022. Um, we had our live show in D.C. last month. Uh, Idris Ali, friend of the program, foreign policy correspondent over at Reuters that's been covering this. And he said if the U.S. aid is stopped, um, he doesn't see this Ukraine putting up. The, the fence that they're putting up, the retaking of some of the territories like you've mentioned, within a couple of months, they could easily go under. I want to ask you, first, do you agree with a little bit of that assessment? But secondly, now that the House has been overtaken by Republicans mm -hmm. and we've already heard Kevin McCarthy and, and some others, they've kind of been tempered down by Mitch McConnell about the Ukraine aid. But if we see a stop in Ukraine aid, at least from the U.S. government, how much longer do you think this will last? Will there be a bargaining chip here 
uh, will Putin play his hand or, or will Zelensky, you know, say, hey, now, now let's come to the table, knowing that the aid will be slashed in half or even all of it? That's absolutely. I mean, listen, there's no question that without U.S. aid and weapons, uh, the Ukrainians uh, would not have been able to uh, get, well, at least to phase three of the war, which is taking back territory. I think the Ukrainians did pretty well, pretty well early on just holding off the Russians, even without a huge amount of U.S. aid, although it should be noted that. Since 2014, the U.S. has been giving the Ukrainians a lot of weapons and training. Um, so, you know, e- even before the war started without any of that, the Ukrainians probably have an even harder time holding off Russia. But the basic premise of the of your question, I think, is correct. Without U.S. without U.S. aid, Ukraine cannot con- certainly can't continue to retake territory. Uh, and I think things things would get would, would get pretty hairy for the Ukrainians pretty quickly. Um, yes, uh, the, you know, McCarthy has made the statements about no more blank check for Ukraine. I don't think there's a world where where you where the where the U.S. cuts aid entirely uh, to Ukraine. That that's hard for me to imagine. But what's going to be interesting is that the weapons, uh, the 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 weapons support that we're sending to Ukraine is actually you know an important kind of. Um, you know, dial for the U.S. to kind of dial up or dial down or send signals to the Ukrainians about what the U.S. wants, you know, the Ukrainians to do without having to come out and say, hey, you know what? It'd be great if you sat down with Vladimir Putin and made peace. Like no U.S. president's going to say that, right? Like it's it, the optics of breaking with Ukraine that strongly would be would be pretty damaging. Um, but by drawing down the military support, you know, quietly, you, that, that's a way of sending a message that, hey, Maybe it is time to to explore some kind of compromise. Uh, my guess is that that will be driven by the White House, though, rather than by the uh, rather than than by the Republican uh, Republican caucus in the House. Um, but but it's certainly something to watch because I think what the Americans want to avoid is having a big political split with the Europeans, particularly the Eastern Europeans, about whether we're supporting Ukraine and how much. Like the U.S. doesn't want to get into a whole argument about who's supporting Ukraine more, whom it matters more to, right? The the U.S. just wants to be on message saying, we support Ukraine's right to defend its territory. We support Ukraine's right to defend its its, its sovereignty. We are united with our NATO allies in that principle. But then if they want to adjust the the situation, put pressure on on, on Zelensky quietly, they can draw down the aid um, as, as um, as a weapon. And I think we will start to see that debate creep up uh, early, early in the new year. I mean, uh, you know, nobody wants this war to go on uh, endlessly, um, and um, and and I think that I think that will come up. It may come up because McCarthy and the Republicans in the House push it, and then it becomes more of a, more of an issue. Um, but I don't think there's a world where the aid is cut entirely. I mean, I don't think you you know there's a significant number of um, uh, of Republicans who who also think it's important to support Ukraine, right? You have a split within the Republican Party. You know, the kind of more uh, Marjorie Taylor Green <laughs> side of, of the party is flatly opposed to any aid at all. But there's an awful lot of more, you know, traditional Russia hawk Republicans um, in the House. And of course, certainly in the Senate, as you mentioned, which I think will keep, you know, keep any circumstance from occurring where the U.S. decides that they cut off the Ukrainians entirely. That doesn't seem likely to me. Yeah, we call them the Freedom Caucus, and they're not that serious, uh, those folks over there. The yeah. disingenuous part of the Republican Party, which I think people don't harp on. They just don't lump the entire party in there, which is fair to a certain extent. But it's right. that it's that loud minority that's yeah. in there right now that really wants to cut this off. All right. When we come back after the break, under 10 minutes, two topics happening overseas, the, the protests that are happening in Iran, 
China's COVID policy. Alex and I are going to break it down after the break. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This episode is brought to you by Kitcaster. Kitcaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. Kitcaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. The presenting sponsor of Can We Please Talk is Fresh Roasted Coffee. Since 2009, their passion has been bringing you gourmet coffees from all over the world. You know how much Nick and I drink coffee. We love it here. I'm a K-Cup guy. Nick's that French press guy over there. Uh, right, Nick? You're a French press guy. I am. But I've also used a, a, a Chemex. I've also used right. a percolator like most people do. Yeah, But regardless of your type of grind, Fresh Roasted Coffee's got you covered. In addition to single origin blends, Mike's a Colombia person. I'm a Sumatra drinker. They've also got a variety of flavors. You also get sampler packs too. I'm all about the sampler packs. But most importantly, let's say coffee's not your thing. If you're a tea person, mm -hmm. they got you covered too, That's Mike. Right. They cover all their bases. So go there and learn about your your learn about your coffee style. You go there to a three, four question quiz. You'll find out what coffee is recommended for you. So you're learning something in addition to buying something. But as a listener, there's an additional benefit for buying from Fresh Roast Coffee. Look at this man. This man sets up the softball. I hit it out of the park. It is true. Um, if you take that questionnaire that's on their site, it's awesome. And it gets you right into the flavor profile that, that matches you best with the coffee that you should be buying. But you want to enter a promo code at checkout. Put all that stuff into the cart there. Enter in the promo to promo code, excuse me, can we get 20? Can we get 20? This offer is valid for new fresh roasted coffee and positively tea customers. You're going to get 20% discount on any and all coffee and tea unless otherwise specified. Code is not valid for branded merchandise or coffee gear. One use per customer. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. All right, Alex, we talked about a couple topics here. 10 minutes we're going to put on the clock. It's a fake timer, but we're going to get into two issues right now. We've we've done a lot uh, on the first topic here with Iran's protest that happened. If you haven't checked out those episodes with Kamen Mohammadi, the famous Iranian journalist and author, Gisuni is a human rights attorney as well, uh, and the director of the Atlantic Strategic Council, excuse me. Um, both of them broke down uh, what is happening with the protest, and you know both of them are of Iranian descent. But mm -hmm. if you've missed this news on Thursday, the Islamic Republic finally, well, not finally, I shouldn't say it like that, but they executed 
uh, one of the first uh, folks that they've captured in this movement in, in Mohsen Sakari, if I'm saying his name correctly, the 23 year old he, uh, for the crime, by the way, of waging war against God. OK, or, or I, I don't know how to say it in Farsi. I can already hear my ex-girlfriend yelling at me that I didn't pronounce it properly in his name. So <laughs> we leave that there. But um, so obviously the protests are still happening after, you know, what happened with the death of Masa Mini. There's been so many needless arrests and death that have been happening in this country. Um, and then there's been different takes across. I just mentioned Gisu, who we're going to play a sound from in a minute. But other prominent Iranians that are living here in America and abroad that are saying certain things that Western civilization should be doing, these Western governments should be doing. I want to play a little bit of what Gisu said recently on MSNBC with my buddy Eamon Mohideen. She was on his show this past week. I'll get your reaction on the other side. In terms of the removal of the CSW, that is what Iranian women's activists in the country have requested. They think that the Islamic Republic will respond to pressure. Um, there also needs to be a very um, a very strong global condemnation of the executions. There needs to be more tangible action. Um, and in the past, there was a moratorium that the Islamic Republic issued on drug-related offenses that carried the death penalty. And that was due to the European Union cutting funding for anti-drug trafficking programs. And so the engagement didn't help there, but the pressure did. All right, Alex, what do you make of not only Gisu's comment, but also what can Western go- I pose this question to her because, again, not well versed in it, not of Iranian descent myself, um, mm-hmm. obviously feel for what is happening there and this morality police that they have that people here conflate communism and socialism, all these terms. And all you got to do is watch and pay attention to this issue that's playing out in this country and and uh, the lack of rights that women have in that country, that they have a morality police going around, making sure that there's good head job and bad head job and who can be arrested based on that, just that principle alone. Um, So what do you make of everything that's happening with the protests in Iran, the recent killing of, of this person that I just mentioned, and then Gisu's comments as well? Well, look, I mean, these are these are the most significant protests you've seen in Iran since 2009. Um, those protests were touched off by, you know, electoral election irregularities, but then took on a broader kind of significance uh, of um, in anti-corruption, frustration with the with the regime. Um, these uh, protests uh, really, I mean, it's remarkable what's happened. The, the 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 longevity of these protests is incredible. The resilience of the protesters is incredible. And what's so interesting about these protests, one of the things that's interesting about them is that they're essentially leaderless, right? There's no like one person or group of people who are leading these. I mean, it is a kind of zeitgeist of frustration amongst the younger generation of Iranians, right? I mean, these are people who were born after, way after the Iranian revolution, right? So the horizon of their memory is not you know, that the Iranian revolution was, um, you know, a great throwing off of the Shah's tyranny, which for a lot of young Iranians, you know, 40 years ago, it, it, it may have seemed that way. This is a generation that's known nothing but the uh, repressive style of the, um, of, of, of the Iranian theocracy. Um, and so they question it more. Um, the leaderless aspect is interesting. So far, the government has responded with crackdowns and these high high profile kind of arrests and executions, um, they haven't brought out the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps to really start smashing heads uh, the way that I, I I worry they may soon. 
the thing about a leaderless protest is it's hard for it to make headway because it's hard to kind of filter demands up to a certain group that is able to press those demands of the government. But also leaderless protests are really hard to stamp out without using a level of widespread ultraviolence that can very quickly backfire. And that I think is the is is the thing to watch in how um, the Iranian regime uh, responds uh, domestically uh, to what's going on uh, in, in the coming weeks. I mean, you know, Supreme Leader uh, Khamenei has made you know he, he made no made no bones about it, right? The, he's not going to listen to what these people are saying, right? He's not this whole fiasco about how they were going to maybe disband the morality police. I mean, this was a total smokescreen. The New York Times reported that it was going to happen, and everyone said that's not what's actually going to happen. And then they looked and they said, yeah, it's actually not going to happen, right? So the the regime is not giving any quarter on this at all, um, and I think it's it, it, it's it's going to reach a very critical phase soon when the regime needs to decide if they are actually going to crack down much harder. And if there is, if that generates more backlash and you get this kind of tipping point scenario where enough people say, this is absolutely insane. The government is, you know, is killing people in the streets just because, you know, they, women don't want to have to wear a headscarf in public all the time. Right. Um, we don't know. There's no way to know. Iran is so much of a black box, uh, you know, for those of us outside the country. I mean, I defer to the knowledge of those who you've talked to who have, you know, who are of Iranian descent, who are, who are super well connected, understand you know the specifics of what comes next but the big picture question is how hard do they crack down now and what is the backlash as far as what the west can do look it's tricky i mean the baseline that you're working with with the iranians is already one of the most isolated governments in the world right it's not like with russia which is which, which was one of the largest economies in the world well integrated with the rest of the global economy and the U.S. could slap a bunch of sanctions on Russia and, and, and hope it made a really big difference. The comparison is interesting. What happened? Well, we've had a pretty bad effect on the Russian economy and, 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 you know, and, and investment in Russia and all these things. But has it deterred Putin from what he sees as an existential issue for Russia, for him personally, for the Kremlin? No. Similar situation in Iran, except that the difference is the Iranian, we've already sanctioned the hell out of the Iranians. So... There are certain, you know, Gisu's point about specific measures affecting, affecting specific issues. She's absolutely right. I think on the broader question of can you force the Iranian regime to back down from an issue that they think is, you know, both from a political and potentially from a theological perspective is essential and existential for their regime. It's a very tough question. Certainly, the, the exercise of putting more sanctions on Iran would be welcome to send a signal. Whether that signal would have a desired effect on changing Iran's behavior, I'm more skeptical. That doesn't mean it's not a good idea to do as a signal and as a as you know as a signal of support for the protesters and of you know disapproval uh, of what the Iranian government is doing. But again, the practical effects of it, it, it I'm I'm skeptical. Mm. Well, I mean. I know one thing both of them mentioned to Nick and I when we were recording those episodes respectively was continue the hashtags, the amplification, uh, the, the show of support, at least what they were hearing from people inside the country was enormous. So continue to amplify uh, those videos, whatever you see on social media, uh, 11 weeks so far that the protests have been happening since uh, Masa Amini's death there mm -hmm. back on September 18th, I think it was. Um, I want to get into... 
the China uh, struggling with their COVID policy. Um, if you haven't heard about this story, you can go check it out across whatever media outlet you look at. But obviously, China had zero COVID restrictions uh, recently implemented, and it confined millions of people to their homes. It sparked protests and demands for President Xi to resign. Um, Alex, for our audience that's not familiar with this, maybe they've seen the viral video of the man being dragged out of his house. If you haven't seen this video, it's got millions of views online where the Chinese government came in and everyone was all in their garbs, taking him out of his house forcefully. Um, can you tell our audience a little bit about where we are with that, with China kind of laxening some of those uh, restrictions on their folks and why they even implemented it in the first place? There was a spike of cases that went up in Beijing, but uh, take our audience inside everything that happened there in China. Yeah, absolutely. So from the very start of the pandemic, um, China has used um, an extreme form of uh, of lockdowns and uh, restrictions in order to stop the spread of uh, the disease, right? This has been right from the start. Um, and there's a couple reasons for that. One, and this was true even after uh, vaccines were developed, um, there's a couple reasons for that. One is that um, the uh, China has a, a, a pretty sizable elderly population. So the people who are, you know, truly most vulnerable to to bad outcomes from COVID, large population of elderly. Um, the Chinese vaccine doesn't really work so well. I mean, there you can raise questions about yeah, the, the, the even the Western vaccines don't prevent transmission, so on and so forth. But you know, they do keep people from from dying. The 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 Chinese um, uh, vaccines are of much poorer quality. And vaccination rates are very low, particularly among the elderly. So what Xi Jinping, President Xi Jinping was worried about is he didn't want to have a situation on his hands where tens of millions of elderly Chinese were dying, right? So there was a practical consideration there. There was also a political consideration. It was a point of pride for the Chinese government early on that they were able to keep their cases so low. Caveat. China is a bit of a black box when it comes to statistics as well, as any economist will tell you. But the indications are that they managed to avoid widespread outbreaks uh, like the ones that we saw, you know, in northern Italy and in the New York area and some of the other, um, you know, kind of big spikes early in the in, in the in the pandemic in the West. And that was a point of pride for the Chinese government. It was another kind of notch in their, hey, you know, uh, dysfunctional democracies. Look how well we do it over here with our smoothly functioning autocracy, right? I mean, they've been trying to make that case for a long time, right? That things just run better. If you have an, a, an autocratic regime where the economy is good and hundreds of millions of people are coming out of poverty, a little authoritarianism is okay. People will put up with it, right? So early on, there was a political thing too. Ha ha ha. Look, we're handling this well. We've had zero, you know, our case, our death rates are so low. Uh, meanwhile, the West is scrambling through lockdowns up, lockdowns down, wave this, wave that, not, not able to handle it. Um, the problem with that was that, uh, as you say, recently, you know, people started to get really fed up with this. I mean, the, the, the economic cost of the lockdowns globally was an issue because it slowed down the Chinese economy, but inside of a, inside of China as well, it, it really started to affect people, right? Um, and so the, the trigger for these recent protests um, was, uh, yes, the, there was the video of the guy being frog marched out of his, out of his house. Um, there was also a, um, uh, an apartment building fire 
in the capital of Xinjiang, which is the west western uh, western region of China, where a number of people died, and uh, it was believed that they had died because they the authorities had basically welded the doors shut to enforce a COVID quarantine. Um, and that set people set people off. And so you start to see protests in Beijing, across the country, uh, in universities. I mean, 1989 Tiananmen Square, this was not, but it was certainly the biggest and most widespread protest against a nationwide kind of Chinese policy that we've seen since 1989. Um, and so people started to say, wow, you know, is this is a real problem for Xi Jinping. The upside of being the most powerful leader in China since Mao, being a sort of basically an autocrat, the upside of that is you can do what you like. Downside of that is when things go wrong, they blame you. And so the Chinese government has actually, you know, kind of been in a, in a tough spot recently uh, on this question. Do they uh, relax the COVID restrictions knowing that it could possibly lead to precisely the terrible outcome that they were, you know, trying to avoid for these past two years, which would have both a negative effect from a human perspective, because a lot of people would die. Uh, and, on, and on top of that, a political perspective, people say, wait, you locked us in our houses for two years only to let us out. And now people are dying like crazy. What the hell is wrong with you? You got it wrong, right? So there's a political aspect. Um, and then there's also... Um, you know, just kind of the precedent, like what, what do they do next? Do they lock back down? Does that piss people off even more? So what they've done now is they have decided to relax some of those um, some of those restrictions. But but it, it, it's going to be interesting to watch because it really is, uh, you know, both a, a human and an economic and a political dilemma for, uh, you know, a leader, Xi Jinping, who until now has been, you know, cruising his way into the history books as the most powerful Chinese leader in in, in modern Chinese history. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's interesting, we, we did a story um, with some folks from Shanghai earlier this year um, about what life was like under quarantine. Um, and it, it was absurd. I mean, one person in an, in an apartment complex would, 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 you know, would have COVID and they would lock down the entire complex, right, for like two or three weeks. We talked to a woman who... Um, who told us she would sneak out of her apartment in the mornings into the garden in the in the courtyard of the complex to to steal cherries from the cherry tree to make cherry jam like you know because there was nothing else for so it it, it really was um, you know the zero covid policy which is so called because the aim is to have zero covid cases and zero deaths um, really has backfired uh, for the Chinese uh, regime, and I think in in a way that um, m much more quickly than than anyone expected. Let's see what happens next. On one hand, it'd be good if the Chinese economy opens up, good for the global economy, right? This is the second largest economy in the world. When they're all locked in their houses and the factories are all shut, that's bad for the global economy. It's bad for demand for the rest of us. Um, but we'll see what happens because if large numbers of people start dying uh, in China now, it, they're going to have to lock down again. And then I think it would get politically dicey uh, much more quickly because people would say, we were locked down. You let us go. Now you're locking us down again. It's too much. Um so, yeah. yeah, listen, um, my takeaways on both of those things under, I think we got under 12 minutes there. So pretty good there on the we run over timer. 10. <laughs> it's a fictional time. It's a, a big world out there, man. It, <laughs> it, it is a big world out there. And you know what? My takeaways are to bring it back home here to the U.S. And I've made this point uh, to folks 
specifically the Latin American folks that are here now in the U.S. that have mm. carried over uh, communism and socialism as their upbringings into here and now are conflating those terms uh, to what's happening here in this democratic country. Um, when you want to talk about communism and socialism, which are not the same things, um, when, when you want to talk about it, take a look at what is happening in Iran, not a communist state, but an authoritarian state. And you look at what's happening in China. Both of those countries is not what is happening here. We do, again, now we're limiting rights on women's rights and then we're doing certain things yeah. uh, that China's doing as well with COVID lockdowns early on, but not to that extent. Welding a door. Imagine what you just said playing yeah. out here. And it drives me nuts that the people that uh, not only conflate the terms, but also uh, look at other countries and say we're heading in those directions drives me oh. absolutely nuts uh we leave it there uh my thank yous to alex Clement. alex you did fantastic today how do you think you did uh, uh filling in for the the incomparable nick severi there the incomparable the timeless the selfless Ooh. i think i was all right i these think are, i was all right oh these are great actually uh, we got to see if nick will will keep some of these uh <laughs> Uh, but my you thank you. I said that. No. Yeah. Well he'll, well, he'll be here listening to this episode. Yeah. Um, uh, listen, uh, my thank yous to you for being on the program. Uh, audio podcast platforms, you know, them by now, Apple, Spotify, Google. If you're watching us on YouTube, uh, hit the subscribe button, please. Or just type in if you're not a subscriber on YouTube. Can we please talk podcast? We'll come right up. Hit the subscribe button. I want to say shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. We can't do it without each and every one of you that listens to this program. The, the people that leave the stupidest comments on our YouTube videos that make absolutely no sense. I think you meant those for Newsmax videos, folks. Uh, but we can't thank you enough for watching and listening. As always, I am Mike Leon. And I'm Alex Clement. We'll see everybody next time. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.